So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and begin to finish off this uh, difficult but very powerful passage of Scripture together. Do do you ever um, think about some of the commands of the Scriptures uh, that uh, you don't like or that uh, you find too difficult to uh, obey or or just leave you frustrated? Uh, You don't disagree with them. You know, they're God's Word, so you don't disagree, but you can't find yourself complying either. For example, one of my favorites along that line is Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. I immediately begin to grumble (laughs) about that thing that says, don't grumble or complain. It just makes, you know, I'm, I'm frustrated as I grumble about that verse of Scripture and God's command. None of you are like that, I'm sure. Another one is be anxious for nothing or not for anything. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. And that's where we're going today. Anxiety is a a battle that all of us have, some more than others. But anxiety is is a horrible thing that we deal with all the time. And living in a corrupt and broken world, uh, we're going to to be dealing with that. We're going to be struggling with that. Paul is writing to a church that I think is filled with anxiety. Uh, They're anxious over lots of things. They're anxious over the things that you and I are anxious over. Just the everyday life situations, the, the problems, the difficulties that we all face. And they were anxious about that. They're anxious also over persecution. Now, as I study this passage more, even this week, I, I believe the, the persecution issue is more uh, that it's coming than, it's, than, than rather than it's there. I think persecution is coming to this church. And they're uh, stressed by that. They're anxious about that. They're not sure quite what to, to do with that. Then they had a particular issue that they've written to Paul about, and Paul is addressing that. It starts in verse 25 when he says, Now concerning virgins, uh, there's an issue about what to do with unmarried women in their church, young, young women who are of marrying age, but, but they're going through this distress, this difficult time. What, are they, what, what should we do? And they want Paul's advice as an apostle, a, a spokesman for God, as to what they should do about that. So they're, they're anxious over that as well. Some of the women here in verse 36, we find that uh, they're they're apparently getting older and moving beyond the marrying age. Now, in that culture, most women married very early, usually in their teenage years, and there came a a place in that culture in which it was very difficult for a young lady to get married. And so some of these people were facing that, and yet they're they're going right into this stress, uh, possible persecution. What should they do about these uh, unmarried women in their church who many of them perhaps were wanting to get married or were ready to get married. And so as we think about that, we, we begin to look at the passage, go back to verse 26, and he's saying, in view of the present distress, I'm going to give you some opinions here. Keep in mind, this is not a universal, timeless set of principles on marriage and who should get married and who shouldn't get married. This is dealing with a particular set of issues Now, we'll look at some great principles coming out of this, but he is dealing with some stressful time, and he's giving them insight into that. So he does not prohibit marriage, neither does he uh, lift up singleness, but he says at this particular point in time, it might be best that you stay in the circumstance that you're in. And there's three reasons why he might have said that. Verse 29, he says, uh, for the time has been shortened. As I contemplated that more even this week, I I thought maybe what he's saying here, and we don't know for sure, but what he might very well be saying is is persecution is coming, it's not here yet, but it's getting close, the time is shortened. And so in light of that, here is what maybe you should be doing 
with these young ladies that want to get married. And then distraction uh, from less important things is very easy. In verse 35, he says, I, I, I want you to have, have undistracted devotion to the Lord. And so at this time, being uh, going through marriages and different things like that, weddings might be very difficult to remain undistracted. And then finally, the world is transitory. Look at verse 31. He says this, uh, the, the, for the, full, the form of this world is passing away. In other words, uh, don't anchor too tightly into this world system because it is transitory. It will not last. And therefore, we need to be very careful about some of the things we do now. But the main point begins with verse 32, where we are today. And he says this, but I want you to be free from concern. And that is the issue we want to, to look at for just a few moments. And that is the issue of anxiety. In verses 36 to 40, he's going to apply that to these marital situations. But his big issue is he does not want them to be anxious or concerned. So let me back off for a moment and tell you where we're going. There are three things I want to do this morning. Number one, I want to look at anxiety from a biblical perspective. And we're just taking an overview of it. Secondly, I want to return to our text for a general application of what Paul is saying. And then finally, I want to look at a specific situation at Corinth and apply what we can to our own lives. Let's start with the issue of anxiety. And notice as uh, we look down through that text Mike read to you just a moment ago, if you're using your Bible study skills and methods, you should note that the word concern shows up five times in four verses. Now that's, that's simple ABC uh, elementary Bible study methods. If you want to know how to study the Bible, just start by observations. And one of the observations is repeated terms or th- words or themes. And so when he, when he mentions concern five times in four, ver- in not four verses, I said, uh, then, then we know that's what it's about. He wants us to be free from concern. Now concern it has a positive aspect in Scripture. Be careful with your word studies and your Bible study methods. Word studies are valuable, but they also can lead you the wrong direction. The word concern itself is not a bad word. Matter of fact, twice here he says you should be concerned about the things of the Lord. That can't be bad, right? That we're concerned about the things of the Lord. Three times though he uses it as we would use anxiety. People that are anxious. Uh, the uh, ESV translates all five of these terms, these, this, this uh, word in the Greek, as anxious or anxiety. And so we're going to be looking here for a few moments at anxiety, not not proper concern about things we should be concerned about, not proper concern about the things of the Lord, but anxiety about life. And to do that, I want to go back to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 6 and 7 uh, to guide us in our discussion. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 6. There's so much in scripture, by the way, about anxiety. I encourage you to study it, to look into it so much we could go into. We're looking at a very brief passage of scripture because this is one that people have loved forever. It's brief, it's clear, it's concise, it's full of hope. Uh, It's one that many of us, probably most of us, have turned to at times and prayed over and memorized and, and been helped by. And so if you're an anxious person here today, and probably that fits most of us, uh, this is a wonderful passage of scripture that you should know about 
and that you should understand. So I want to go uh, into this passage with you, and we, let me just read the two verses. He starts in chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, for he cares for you. As we look at verse, we'll look in a moment at verse 7, about casting our anxiety on him, but we don't divorce that verse from the context, which is verse 6, of humbling yourself before the mighty hand of God. They go together, this humility, this humbleness, and the casting of our anxieties on the Lord go together like tongue and groove. Uh, tongue and groove flooring, for example, is made so it fits together and works together and looks good together. And so it, this is exactly what humility and casting our anxiety on the Lord does. It goes together. Uh, humility then, as he talks about that, let's, let's start with anxiety. Why, what causes us to be anxious? If you're worried about something right now, what is it that you're worried about? Let me, in general terms, uh, tell you that there's probably there's three different possibilities there. Uh, you might be worried about the past, the memories of the past, the things you have done you shouldn't have done, the failures that you've had, the guilt that riddles your soul at times. And so there are times in, in, uh, when you're alone and you think, oh, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I go that direction? Why did I make that choice? And we worry and angst over that which happened in the past, which quite frankly you can do nothing about now, right? The only thing you possibly can do about the past is learn from it and perhaps ask forgiveness or make amends of someone you've wronged. But beyond that, there's not anything you can do to change the past. The past is past. The second thing we worry and get anxious over is the present. All the things we have to do now, the things at work, the things uh, in our family, the things that uh, in our own personal life, all these things that are present right now. And those are issues that, uh, that sometimes can tie us up in knots as we think of all the multitude of things that, that we need to do and are anxious over. And then thirdly, there is the fear of the future. And I think that's where a lot of people are, maybe most. What if? What if that happens? What about that? What if? We, we don't know the future, and yet we angst over the future. And quite frankly, again, folks, there's nothing you can do about the future. Uh, and and uh, some, one study said 90% of all the things we worry about never happen. Or if they do, you, you couldn't have done anything about them anyway. And yet we spend much of our life wondering about the past. I, I mean, worried about the future. Wondering about the past, too, but worrying about the future and things that we cannot at this point do anything about. So one of those three categories probably fits your anxiety. Anxiety, when used in this word uh, sense, is the idea of being pulled apart. Uh, kind of think of a picture of you're, you're tied to two horses and they're going different directions. Uh, the being pulled apart. Uh, that's the feeling of anxiety when it's encroached upon you and beginning to take over your life. What is God's remedy to this anxiety what, that he gives us through the Apostle Peter? Again, we could go in many places to study this with great profit. We've had classes on this in Sunday school and so forth, and we'll have them again. But right here we have some earth-shaking, life-changing concepts in these very short verses. Let's start, first of all, with the word humility back in, in the verse 6. Humble yourself under the mighty hand 
of God. Matter of fact, the casting your cares upon him or your anxieties upon him is a participle that depends on the word humility, the verb. Therefore, it means nothing to cast your cares if, first of all, you're not humble before the mighty hand of God. So we start with the humility before God and submitting ourselves to the will of God. Scripture doesn't call us to be passive, folks. Uh, we're not, uh, God didn't say, I'll do it all, you sit back and relax. Uh, we're, we're in partnership with God, but we're junior partners, right? He is in charge. He is sovereignly in control. And Peter calls it the mighty hand of God. We start with that. Let God be God. Don't take God's burdens upon yourself. Don't do what only God can do. Don't be worried about what only God is concerned about. You've got enough to be concerned about without trying to take on God's burdens upon yourself as well. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And notice that phrase, though, the mighty hand of God. What an interesting phrase. Um, this is telling us that we serve an almighty God, which we find all the way through Scripture, the omnipotent, almighty God. And we humble ourselves under the hand of that God. If you do not believe in an almighty God, or God, period, let me tell you something. You ought to be anxious. Matter of fact, if you're not anxious right now, you're insane. Right? Because our world's falling apart at the seams. You know? Uh, everywhere we turn, there's something we can't control and something's out of our control and something to be anxious about. Uh, uh, this COVID virus that's come through and it's not over yet is still uh, taking the lives of many, many people. Several, four people I know of this last week that I know of died of COVID. Pastors that died this last week of, of COVID. This isn't over yet. It's, it's something to be concerned about. It's something that many people are anxious over and perhaps uh, with good reason. Uh, our, we, we have um, a world that's falling apart on all levels. Jobs are weird, aren't they? I mean, jobs are being lost. You can't find jobs. You, nobody, nobody's working at Wendy's and you can't get your fries. I mean, this it, is a time to be anxious, you know, quite frankly, right? Uh, the weather is crazy. We're all over the country. We find unbelievable weather that's causing all kinds of tragedies and, and heartaches of all different kinds. And people have died. Our politicians don't seem to have a clue. I mean, I think everybody agrees with that, right? I mean, what in the world are we thinking? What, where is common sense gone? Uh, all of us is that around, and we can get all, all so tied up about that. We can read every blog and every, everything that comes down the internet and drive ourselves absolutely insane. If you can't get upset at CNN, turn on Fox. If you can't get upset with Fox, just, just turn on anything. And you got, and what is going on? Well, we're not done yet. I've got some more. How about gender issues? What, what in the world's going on? Common sense and just common decency is gone. On so many levels, we just, we just don't even know what to think about so much of this. There are, there are, uh, and then we're running out of fuel. Isn't it funny that um, we're having the, the Climate Control cli uh, Congress, or whatever that is, overseas, at the very time they're running out of fuel in Europe to keep them warm this winter? What a world we live in. Isn't this fun? Folks, if you are not anxious over these things, and you don't believe in an almighty God, you should be. Matter of fact, if you need counseling, 
Come to our counseling center. You tell us we don't, you don't believe in God. We'll tell you why you should be scared out of your socks. I don't think that's good counseling, but that's what we'll do for you. All right? But we're not done. Muslims believe in an all-powerful God. They talk about Allah being all-powerful all the time. But the Muslims don't love God. And Allah doesn't love them. And there's no personal relationship. Oh, that's not true of Christianity. Let's, let's go on. He says here in our next verse, he says, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. There's the difference. We have an almighty sovereign God who does not wring his hands over COVID or politicians or climate control or anything else. Almighty, powerful God who cares for us. That changes everything. Once again, I don't want a God who's all-powerful but doesn't care. That's a tyrant. I want a God who not only is all-powerful but all-loving and who loves me and who loves us and the one that we know that we can turn to. Once again, if you believe in God but you don't believe in a God that loves you and cares for you, you should be anxious. You should be torn up. You should be tied in knots over everything. But if you believe in a God who's all-powerful and you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, now you're ready to cast your cares upon a God who cares. And that is the framework. That is the, the essence by which we can not be anxious over all these things. John, the Puritan John Owen said this, Do not be content to have right ideas about the love of Christ in your mind unless you have a gracious taste of it in your heart. In other words, don't just be a theologian that can rattle off that God is love. Be a theologian that has experienced that love. And that love is part of who you are. You've tasted it. You've allowed the, the truth of who God is to penetrate who you, your, your own heart. Someone else has said this, when everything is seen through the lens of God's love, that lens becomes a filter. Think about that. I have filters on my furnace and in my car. Those filters block out or filter out pollutants so they don't cause damage. The love of Christ filters out the pollutants of this life. Are the, is this world just filled with pollutants and corruption? You better bet it is. It's the love of the Almighty God that filters out all those things. So those things don't control us. The Almighty God does. And then Paul Tripp says this. I really like this. He said, The God of many people is not the God who can be trusted with the fine china of, our, of their lives. Some of you uh, women in particular, I don't know if you men do, but some of you women have fine china, uh, very pretty place settings that you only use on special occasions. Would you give those place settings to your two or three-year-old to go put them up, put them on the table? Here, here, honey, could you go put that very valuable, very precious stuff I got from Grandma, just go set the table? Would you do that? Now, if you're sane, right? Because those things are important to you. They're precious to you. And so you can't trust them with just anybody. Can you trust God with the fine china of your life? Can you trust God with those things that are, that are precious to you and valuable to you and important to you? Do you feel you can trust him with the fine china of your life? And if you can, then you're ready to cast your anxiety upon him. 
And so it all goes back to that and what we've looked at so far. Now let's move on. The next thing to do is to cast your anxiety on him. The word cast or casting means to throw upon. It's only used one other time in all the Bible. It was back when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem and getting ready, getting ready to get on the donkey. And some people took some garments and cast them on the donkey. That's the only other time it's used. So take a look at that picture. We have cast some garments on the donkey. Now who's going to carry the garments now? Well, the donkey. But what if two, uh, two of the Jewish men standing on either side said, we got to help the donkey. That garment's too heavy. Charlie, you grab one side. Bill, you grab the other. And we'll help the donkey. That's nuts, right? The donkey doesn't need your help. Now that's exactly the word he's using here. Taking the burdens of our lives, the anxieties of our lives, and casting them on Christ, on the, on the Lord, and leaving them there. That's the picture that he gives us. Now I know as you do that, and I have done this, and so I just want to deal with this for a second. Let's say you obey this. Let's say after this service today you go home and you've got some real anxieties about your job, and about your family, about your health, whatever. And you apply God's word to your life. You say, God, you're almighty. You're in charge. You're all powerful. And I know you love me, that you're, you're all wise, you're all loving, you're all powerful. And I can cast on you every burden I have and I can give it to you. I know I can do that. And so you do it at 1210. And at 1215, you picked it back up again. You just ripped that garment right off the donkey. And you walked away with it again. What should you do? Let me suggest this. This is profound. This is a deep, deep thought. Do it again. And the next time you take it off, that burden off the Lord, do it again. Cast it. Keep casting. Keep casting until it becomes part of who you are. And you'll never get beyond the time when you're not going to be having to deal with some anxiety, right? But here's a very simple formula. It's not profound. It's not deep. It's not heavy. Obey. Cast your burdens upon him because he is the great almighty caring God. And you just keep doing that as often as those things come into your heart. I read of a young pastor named Toby who uh, was at a full ministry, had a little baby boy, and had a wife dying of cancer. And a friend of his said, how are you doing this, Toby? How are you handling all these burdens, all this anxiety? And Toby had a very interesting concept. He says, I see myself as a warehouseman, not a warehouse. I carry burdens only long enough to put them in the warehouse, and then I walk away. The warehouse is God. I'm just a warehouseman. And whatever comes, I take it to the warehouse and give it to my God. What a pretty picture. What a good picture of what he's talking about here. Well, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 now and begin to look at some application. Looking at verse 32. He said, I want you to be free from concern. There's our word anxiety. I want you to be free from that. And then he says, he gives a specific context of this marital situation. Let me read that for you. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin 
is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit, but the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. So he takes this thing, this issue of not being concerned, and he applies it to the life of these folks. Our decision as to whether we should marry or who we should marry is the biggest decision we'll ever make this side of knowing Jesus Christ. And so it's a huge, huge decision. And we've all seen people's lives fall apart uh, by marrying people they shouldn't marry, marrying the wrong person. So it's extremely important. You marry the wrong person and you'll face tensions in your life and you'll face pressures you never even knew existed. Uh, You'll face heartache, perhaps one right after the other. You'd give anything if you could turn the clock back and not have married that person. It's kind of like the little girl who went to her first wedding. She said to mom, why is that lady up there wearing a white dress? Mom said, well, she's the bride and the white is happy and this is the happiest day of her life. And the little girl stopped for a moment and said, well, why is the guy wearing black? Hmm? Oh, we don't want your marriage like that, right? We want a marriage that is honoring to him. Now, let me say this. For those of you that are a little more pious than me, there is no marriage that doesn't have problems. There are, there are going to be days, two sinners are married, there are going to be days when you're going to say to yourself, you know what, I wish I hadn't married that person. And there's going to be days, say, I don't know what I would do without that person. There's going to be days of struggle, there's going to be days of heartache, there's going to be days of joy, all together in a package, right? And that's life in a corrupt world. Nevertheless, he gives the great clues on who to marry and how we should marry them. But I want you to notice one important thing here. In verse 35, here is is what he's really after. And the whole chapter, and that's this. I say that for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Everything he's saying in this very complicated chapter is to secure for us undistracted devotion to God. That's what he wants for us in our marriages or in our singlehood or in every other aspect of life. Last week I kind of hammered out that issue. That was my sermon last week, really. Undistracted devotion to the Lord. It didn't go without notice by some of our staff that last Sunday was the most distracting service I've been in in years. I don't know how many of you noticed that. I bet a bunch of you did. We had people getting up throughout the service. I don't know what they were doing. Uh, checking their stock scores. or what. I don't know what they were doing. We had all sorts of people doing that. And we had some legitimate things happening. I found out later on where people needed to get up. But I never saw so many people getting up and down. Well, you know what happens to us because we have no focus? Is we, every time we see somebody get up, we watch them. There they go. Look, oh, oh, out the door. There, oh, uh, no, they're coming back. Are they going to sit in the same chair? No, they they did. What's wrong with us? We're like squirrels. But we are. I mean, we've lost. Any little thing distracts us, doesn't it? Anything. I mean, I could go on for a long time. I have been up here for a hundred years. I am never distracted by people doing these things. I'm so used to it. But last week with the, I thought, is everybody going to go to the bathroom at once? Should we stop the service? Everybody go. Everybody come back. And then out in the hallway, because there was some circumstances that were very legitimate, there was a whole bunch of people out there talking. I can see you. Out there, you think you're hiding from me. I see you. You ever thought about how a preacher stands up here? 
preaches from the word of God and sees a whole crowd of people out there walking around or talking? Ever thought about that? Now, I'm so used to that that I usually handle that well, but last week I was going, I don't even know what I'm talking about. I totally missed the first third of my sermon last week. So I know you did too. So I just thought that was appropriate to tell you. Okay. And encourage bathroom breaks before services. That's an application for the Word of God right there, right? Okay. With all jokes aside, we are distracted easily. Not just from things like that, but in life. Here I am serving God, and, and I'm singing these songs. Once Jim found that song, it was really good, Jim. Uh, and, and I'm singing these wonderful songs, and, and, I'm think, and my mind goes to something else. Yours never does that, right? And then I focus back and say, wait a minute. Listen to those words. Follow that teaching of the scripture found in that, that song. And, and it refocus. But I'm doing that all day long, aren't you? All, constantly battling distractions And here's what he wants, undistracted devotion to the Lord. That's our goal. Do we ever reach that? I don't think so. Not completely, but that is always our goal. Undistracted devotion to him. Let's go to verses 36 to 40 now. Let's look at some specific instructions. Verse 36 says this, But if any man thinks he is acting unbecomely toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. Now, he, again, this is not universal teaching on marriage. He's dealing with a particular situation, some very stressful times, and he's trying to guide them through those times. We're not even sure what virgin means here. In the New American Standard, as I mentioned last week, they, the translator added the word daughters. Uh, and that's because in ancient times, the fathers arranged the marriage for their daughters. So they are assuming that. The ESV assumed that it's just betrothed people, engaged people. And so either way, we have young ladies who are not married, who want to be married, and, uh, but they're in a difficult, difficult time. So what should they do? Verse 37. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. Okay? But, verse 38... Uh, so then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well and he who does not give her in marriage does will do better again under the circumstances so Paul doesn't come down and say yes you should be married or no you shouldn't be married he says Here the, here's what I'm giving you here's some parameters here's some thoughts that you should deal with at this time but then he moves on to verse 39 and he begins to look a little closer at uh, says a wife is bound as long as her husband lives but if a husband is dead, she's free to be married to whomever she wishes, only in the Lord. Now, there's several things here. Uh, first of all, he's pointing out the permanency of marriage. Marriage is a serious thing. If you're going to marry somebody, you need to realize that, you're, that the Lord wills that you be married to that person until you die. Now, we saw a couple weeks ago that there are a couple uh, instances where that would be uh, divorce is allowable, primarily with immorality. But the intent is for us to stay together for the rest of our lives. At every wedding I've ever been to, part of the vows always say, to death do us part, right? So we're going to stay together until death do us part. And I think, I think every time I hear that repeated by a young couple, I think to myself, do they really know what they're promising? Do you realize that uh, you're going to have 60, maybe 70 years together? 
it's very romantic to say we want to grow old together. Not always so easy. I was just talking to a person in a hospital last week, uh, uh, quite aged and quite sick, and she said to me, as often I hear this from old people, she said to me, if you think being a teenager is tough, you ought to try being old. All right? And you know what? Uh, when you're sitting up there, you're 22, 23 years old, and you're fresh and young and happy and, and got no problems whatsoever, and you, and you look into her eyes or his eyes and say, oh, to death do his part. I'll never, ever think about leaving you, and, and we'll always be together. And then 60, 70 years later, one of you are dying. And you're now, you're, now you're dealing with someone who is very, very sick and in great need. What do you do now? Well, to death do his part. You faithfully attend to one another and love one another to the very end. And he's saying here, look, that this relationship that you're having with this individual is permanent. There are no loopholes here that, that should be there. Only immorality of the guilty party allows such a thing. You should be faithful no matter how difficult it might be to this person. Now, if the person passes away, she sa- he said, well, you're free to remarry, but only in the Lord. And then verse tw- 40, and, but in my opinion, she's happier if she remains as she is, and I think I have the Spirit of God. Now, I want to close by talking about a few principles. I want to give you three principles that we can draw primarily from this text on marriage. Uh, and, uh, and this the particular issue that he's dealing with. Again, he's dealing with a very unusual issue. This is not normal. But I want to draw three things to your attention here. Number one, a Christian may marry, but only another Christian. That's verse 39. You've heard this before. You're, she's free to, re, to marry to whom she wishes only in the Lord. He doesn't give them five steps on how to find a, a husband or wife, but he says if you marry that individual, you marry somebody who is another believer, only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. I, want, I think most of you as Christians know that, but for those of you that are maybe younger, you're not married yet, you're thinking this through, coming along that direction, let me say this, it's very, very easy to fake yourself out. I don't know how many times throughout my ministry with other people as well as myself, that I've seen people wanting to get married, and you ask the person, say to the girl maybe, you say, uh, is he a believer? Oh, yes, he is. Well, how do you know? Well, he says he is. Um, well, what makes him think he said? Well, when he was seven years old, he went to camp, and he threw a stick in fire. Or he raised his hand at, at child evangelism when he's five, or at VBS or something else. Oh, well, that's interesting. Does he walk with the Lord? Does he love the Lord? Does he, does he want to come to church? Does he read the scriptures? Does he care about the things of Christ? No, not really. But he says he will later. Friends, that's a, that's a smoke screen. That's a smoke screen. You ought to be looking not only for somebody who claims to be a Christian, but somebody who lives like a Christian. Okay? So that principle is, I think, embedded in this very clearly right here. Secondly, seek wisdom. This church, for all of its problems at Corinth, sought the wisdom of the Apostle Paul, the spokesman of Christ. And so we commend them for that, and Paul gives them his wisdom. I hope they followed it. This church was looking for that. So let me encourage you, as you think that marriage through in the future, and for you parents and so forth that are guiding your children, as you think about that, let me encourage you to seek wisdom. First of all, God tells us in James 1 to ask for, ask for wisdom. He'll give it to you. If you trust him, 
So start there, and then go to the scriptures. Most of God's wisdom is in the Bible. You're going to find it not some in some mystery or mystical form. You're going to find it in scripture. What does scripture say? See, and then seek the wisdom of other godly people, people who have been through the ropes, people you can trust, people you know have a good marriage, uh, people who love Christ, and seek their wisdom, and it's helpful. And as you, as you think about that, think about this person you're going to marry. What are they really like? I mean, I'm not talking about their popularity or their looks or their sports ability or their outward personality. Three days after you're married, it won't matter much about any of those things. But what is that person really like? When he says in verse 35, I want you to secure, to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord, he's talking about a life together as a husband and wife in which we can serve him better as a unit than as single. So that our lives are not distracted in any sense, even by one another. Can this person you want to marry help you walk with Christ? If not, it's the wrong person. Today, when we think about getting married, we ask them, oh, do you love him? Oh, that's great. Who, wouldn't, who, who wants to get married if they don't love somebody? But that's never the criteria in Scripture. That's never the criteria in Scripture. The bigger criteria is, can you serve Christ better with that person than without them? And if that's true, then you need to ask a lot of questions about these, this individual in your, own, in your own discussion with them and so forth. Let me, so you're going to marry this person who claims to be a Christian. Let me ask you, do they go to church regularly? Do they serve in a body of Christ? Do, do they read the scriptures? Do they uh, pray? Are they, are they giving evidence of true Christianity in their lives? Uh, what kind of worker are they? Can they keep a job? Do they work hard? Can they live a thousand miles away from their parents? If they have to, we're called, called to leave and to cleave. How do they handle money? 50% of all marital problems, many claim, go back to money issues. So that's a big one. Are they always in debt because they have to always be buying something else? Are they enslaved to material things? Do they know how to save? And do they give, and we're talking about Christians here, do they give proportionally of their income to the work of Christ? My friend, if you've got somebody who says, I love Christ, but I don't give to God's work, you're talking to somebody who either isn't a Christian or completely off the wall in their understanding of Christianity. Look at your, bill, look at your checkbook, look at your accounts, are you giving proportionally to the Lord? What kind of Christian can say, I don't give to him because I don't want to? What kind of Christian would do that? This person you want to marry, are they a giver? That is going to be reflected in how they give to you and their unselfishness or their stinginess. What kind of temper do they have? Proverbs 22, 24 says that we shouldn't, we shouldn't hang around a, an angry person because it rubs off on us. Many other things can be involved here as well. We should be seldom in a hurry to marry. It's an important issue. An important issue should be looked at from the biblical perspective. Everybody here knows about uh, Frankenstein. The mo- you probably watched the movie. I, wonder, I, I bet a lot of you never read the book. But in the back of the book that I copy I have is a bio of Mary Shelter, uh, uh, what's her name? Shelley's life. 
she, uh, this, this book, if you read the real book, it's just a dark book. And if you read the book, you find that the, bi- the biographer said her, her dark life was reflected in Frankenstein. In that book, uh, my copy of it, here's her own testimony of her own marriage. That helped her write a great book. We have lived, her and her husband, uh, Percy Shelley, we have lived five years together, and if all the events of the five years were blotted out, I might be happy. That's the kind of marriage you want? Might make you write a great novel. Miserable, miserable life. She married the wrong person. Groucho Marx, a famous comedian of the past, said it much more humorously. He said, I was married by a judge. I should have asked for a jury. (laughs) But let me give you a real happy one. Everybody knows John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace. You may not know that throughout his life he had a, a love. And this love he had all the way back his unsaved days all the way through. He was a very studious, very serious guy. He married a gal that was happy-go-lucky and friendly and everything he wasn't, and they were a perfect fit. He could hardly stand to be away from her all of his life. In his letters to her uh, and about her in his old age, he said there were co- that there was a constant yearning for her presence. When he wasn't with her, he repeated her name out loud, imagining her routine and reconstructing her past, their past conversations. He wanted to think about her at all times. And then he said this, I'll close with this. He said, every room, he wrote her, and he's been married 22 years, and he wrote her this in a letter. Every room where you are not present looks unfinished. Isn't that cool? Isn't that the kind of marriage you want? A marriage where two people finish one another. Where they come together, as Christ intended, to live for him. And to serve him better as, two, as one than as two. So this is a hard passage, isn't it? I'm glad I'm done. <laughs> but there is much here to draw us to an undistracted devotion to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for your precious word. Every word in the scriptures are yours and to be something we glean from. Some are harder than others like this chapter has been. But I trust, Father, that what we looked at today will be helpful in each life. I pray, Father, for those that do not know you as Savior and maybe don't even know if there is a God, certainly not a God that loves. They're, they're, they ought to be anxious. May they be so anxious they turn to the Savior for forgiveness of their sins even this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.